0: Theology without doxology, you just have dead, cold orthodoxy, which is horrible, right? On the other side, you have the people who say, Ah, forget about theology, I just want to praise, right? But if you have doxology without theology, you actually have idolatry. Morning. Morning. All right. Well, my name's uh, Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here at Resurrection Church, and I wanted to start by just talking about Memorial Day just briefly. Uh, The way that Americans sort of celebrate Memorial Day has certainly changed over the years. It's just sort of become this default, we're going to go take a trip somewhere, vacation. Uh, But in reality, Memorial Day, which is different than Veterans Day, is not a day where we remember everyone that has served in the armed forces, but rather it is a holiday of contemplation in which we, in gratitude, um, remind ourselves of the perspective that there are a great many men and women that have given their lives for the freedoms that we get to partake in every single day. And there is a, while it is not necessarily a Christian holiday, there are some Christian elements to the idea of having a perspective to live in gratitude of someone that gave their life for you. And so for just a moment, I want to pray over those not only that have passed in service to our country, um, but those that continue to risk their lives, whether it's on foreign soil, whether it's in defense of the country, or whether it is in protection of us, which we see many first responders putting their life on the line every single day so that you you and I can live in relative luxury. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for first and foremost, your son who is the example of pouring out his life for others. God, we thank you for the liberty and the freedom that we so easily and sometimes almost lazily partake in here in this country. Well, we thank you for what you've granted to us and we thank you for the sacrifice of men and women who have given their lives so that we could partake in this freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in a series called Teach Me How to Church. Now, some of you, particularly if you're newer here and you haven't been here since the beginning of the, ser- uh, of the series, which I think we're in week six now, you're probably thinking to yourself, what is the guy who can't even figure out how to cut his hair correctly going to teach me about church? <laughs> it's a good question. I think it's an appropriate question. Uh, and my answer to you is probably not a lot. However, that's actually not what we... We we posited to you at the beginning of this series, what we said is that everyone's got opinions about church. You do, I do, your mama does, but the Bible has a recipe for what church is supposed to be like, what it's supposed to accomplish, what it's supposed to be centered around, what it's supposed to major on, what the priorities should be and shouldn't be. And so if we really want to get church right, let's just go back to the scripture, let's take our time, and let's walk through what scripture says the church should be about. So teach me how to church is us reading scripture and saying, illuminate us, teach us, correct us, exhort us, encourage us about church. And so we're in week six, and we have learned a lot in six weeks but there has been a lot covered, even though we haven't covered a lot of verses about how church should and shouldn't work. So we started at the beginning of uh, chapter four. So we're in Ephesians chapter four. We did one verse. Remember, we were taking our time. We did one verse. And we learned that at the very foundation of church is you and I each first individually being compelled by what God has done and will do, walking out this faith. Now, the moment we got kind of to the end of that verse, what we realized is even though this is an individual Compulsion. Even though we rightly look at what God did for us, in us, to us, that walk almost instantaneously becomes a group walk. So, so it has never been intended to be an individual faith. It is a communal faith. You walk out, we practice this, figuring out what the Christian life is going to be like together. For all the bumps and bruises that doing it together looks like, And so what Paul does, as soon as he addresses that this should be a walk, not a plop, right? He then begins to talk about how we do that, because the how we do it matters. The tone in which it happens matters. But we had to first establish that you and I should each be individually compelled to actually walk, so you have to get your head around this perspective that there are no spectators in the Christian sport, right? There's no like, well, that's the team and that's the coach and all the rest of us sit up in the stands and every once in a while, if it's interesting enough, we clap. But that, that's not how it works. Everyone's walking. And if you're not walking, like there's something wrong. I know this is different because we've been to American church. And, it, and in American church, there's a few people walking, and there's a lot of people doing a uh, critique, you know, a rating, like a five-star rating. I, like, I'm going to, you know, that's a three out of five-star today, Pastor. It could have been a little better. You, you, no, you have never done. Never mind. <clears throat> okay, moving on. Paul says to do this, to begin this walk, and flavor it, With these these things that would set the tone of our lives humility, which is lowliness, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. So, this is the tone of what this walk, this life together looks like. Hungry, almost urgent for unity with one another that we see modeled by the Trinity. This is what we've covered the last six weeks. And, and then it says that each of you, each of you and I, because we're different, not just different backgrounds, not just different cultures, not just different ethnicities, although all of those things were true in the New Testament, and they're true now, but we'll be different because we'll be gifted and granted different gifts by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. So even if we were not different, we'll be different specifically because of how the Holy Spirit will deal with each of us. And so that will cause us, because of that variety and that difference and the uniqueness, it would be easy to find reasons to disagree. Is it easy to find reasons to disagree? I mean, when when we talk about whether or not you want to be in a specific local church or not, I always say, listen, if you're looking for something that is wrong in this church, it's not going to be hard. It's a quick, like you're going to find something really quick. But if you're looking for reasons to fight for unity, we're going to get back into the Bible and go, oh, that's why. Now, what we're going to cover today is verses 11 and 12. So Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. And, and, and um, sometimes preaching a sermon, you know, you're, you're sitting down, you're just, you're just thinking and, and praying and reading about what God wants you to say. There is so much about Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 that I spent most of the week trying to just edit things that God didn't want me to say because there's so much we can work on here because what what we're going to find in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 is the purpose of these gifts that we just talked about last week, these spiritual gifts that are given to every single believer, but they differ in what they are. And that what we're going to find is the purpose of these gifts is empowerment and direction, empowerment and direction. So what we're going to see is empowerment, which is the giftings, And the Holy Spirit that every believer has dwelling within them if they've been saved by God. And direction, the purpose of shepherds and the purpose of scripture in order to direct this walk. I just want to remind you, and and you'll see it again here. You'll see it actually throughout a lot of Ephesians. You have been gifted tremendous power by God. There is a reason that the hope of glory is Christ in you. Here's the big idea that we're going to start with and we're going to end on today. We tend, you and I, believers, we tend to underestimate our spiritual gifts, undervalue our shepherds, and misuse our resources. These are our tendencies. These are the things that we should always be on the lookout for because we're going to do this again and again. We tend to underestimate our spiritual gifts, undervalue our shepherds, and misuse our resources. Here, here, here are the two verses we're going to cover today. You can read with me in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to read from the ESV. It says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, And teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Let's start at the beginning here at verse 11. And he gave the apostles and prophets. So the apostles and prophets, apostles uh, or apostleship and prophets were foundational offices of the church foundational offices of the church. They're going to be mentioned together twice already in the book of Ephesians, and we've been covering this in a linear fashion. So if you flip back to Ephesians 2.20, or you go back and look at Ephesians 3, 4, and 5, you'll see that apostles and prophets are mentioned together. And not only are they mentioned together, they're mentioned without the other three offices that we're going to see in a minute. So apostles and prophets, apostles and prophets, apostles and prophets, we continue to see that. And, And the reason that these are foundational, and we can see. this in Ephesians 2.20, you're going to see it this way. uh, It's talking about the church. It says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the church, again, this series is about how do we church? It is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with Christ being the cornerstone. Ephesians 3, 4, and 5 says this, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has not been made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed, you could underline that word revealed if you're reading there, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So these two church offices, apostles and prophets were offices of revelation, the recipients of revelation. And both of them in the scriptures are recognized as authoritative. And what that means is that when you look at the New Testament, it is God's word inspired by the Holy Spirit delivered through apostles and prophets. And it is looked at as authoritative, meaning that we look at this as the express Word of God. Apostles were the founders of the church and the faith. They're responsible for the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, one of the requirements to be an apostle was to have seen the risen Lord. You had to have seen Jesus resurrected. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 9.1 and 1 Corinthians 15.7-9. through 9. Apostles were endowed to do great signs to confirm the gospel as they went out and established the churches. And so we see that in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, and in Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. They were the highest authority. So they, uh, apostles were a higher authority than prophets. And we'll actually see that prophets were submissive to apostles. We see that in 1 Corinthians 14. Prophets foretold the future of the church. But primarily, the prophecies that we see from prophets in the New Testament were to encourage, exhort, and build up the church. To encourage, exhort, and build up the church. Now, um, we believe both of these specific church offices ended after the establishment of the church because they were foundational offices. They were built to give us the authoritative text that we would need, which is the Holy Scripture, in order to actually live out the faith. Now, um, there's lots of debate in various denominations about some of the gifts of the Spirit, and we'll talk about a couple of those. We're not going to spend a ton of time on that today, but apostles seen as how they had to see the risen Lord, it would be difficult for the apostolic ministry as an office to continue unless any of you have had Jesus visit, right? They had a role, a very specific role, which is so that you and I would get the canonized, that means closed, New Testament so that we would have God's inspired words at our disposal in order to guide us. And we're gonna talk a lot about the scripture today. And let me just make this side note. We have never in the history of the earth had such access to scripture as we do today. We have it at our fingertips. You have a smartphone, you have it at your fingertips in 30 translations in a lot of languages, right? So the issue is not access It's urgency. Okay. What about gifts that are often attributed to these offices, like speaking in tongues, miracles, healing, and prophecy? Uh, All of these were different gifts that we see described in various points of the New Testament, oftentimes attributed to these two church offices, apostles and prophets. Except we know that there's not a direct correlation. So so these gifts of the Spirit, uh, speaking in tongues, miracles, healing, and prophecy— were oftentimes attributed to people who did not hold that office. Countless people in the New Testament church utilized these gifts, and they didn't hold these offices. So we see elders who are doing healing in James 5, uh, but were not necessarily apostles or prophets. We see women prophesying in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, So so the gifts of the Spirit are not necessarily indicative of those church offices that we believe have uh, gone away. Uh, Not going to talk about all of these gifts today, which would be a lot of fun and would love to have that conversation. There's countless debate on some of these gifts. In fact, uh, denominations largely at different times in our church history have formed around this topic of which gifts are still active and which gifts aren't active. And uh, lots of people have had very unfruitful conversations about those gifts, I will say a couple things about a, uh, a couple of these gifts I think that, that mattered. So I don't wanna cover all of prophecy. There is a debate that you should know because when you read it, sometimes people won't call this out. There is a debate on the gift of prophecy as it stands today. Uh, one, some people believe it doesn't exist at all anymore and it, w- it ended at the point that the church was established because it was no longer necessary as one of the foundational gifts. That's a viewpoint that many hold. We typically call that viewpoint cessation meaning that there are expressed gifts of the Spirit that ceased at either the canonization of Scripture, which was a couple hundred years later, or at really the establishment of the church. So that would be a cessationist view. Um, There's another view about prophecy, that prophecy is actually preaching. That, That prophecy is when you preach out the revealed Word of God, you are prophesying. That is a second Uh, version, kind of opinion around the idea of prophecy, except that we know that not all prophecy in the New Testament was that. In fact, we have very specific times where there was a prophecy that was not simply preaching the word of God, but that is an opinion. And then the third is that prophetic visions, like actually being able to see the future of the church, being able to actually be given a vision by the Lord about something, that that is the gift of prophecy. So these are three opinions, probably the three mainstream opinions on this gift in the church today. Um, I believe that our church should be a place where we can build unity between believers who believe any of those three things. Now, I just want—I want to tell you something. In the church world today, that's kind of unheard of. In the church world today, you have to have a view on one, and we make it a really big deal. And wherever you land, you probably aren't going to feel comfortable at this church if you feel differently. And and I want to tell you this gift—it's just not a primary doctrinal issue. It is not. It is not of salvific nature. It is not about the character of God. Therefore, it is not a primary issue. Maybe, maybe, depending on how it was viewed, you could call it a secondary issue, but, but for a lot of churches, it's a tertiary issue. It's down on the list, guys. And you can have different opinions about this and different viewpoints on this and, and still be brothers and sisters in Christ and break bread together and do life together. Does that make sense? This is not the thing that you break fellowship over. Now, there can be abuses of this gift that must be corrected. And that's different. And and, and let me tell you what I mean by that. There are two common things that have to be corrected if you see this gift. I know we're on a rabbit trail. It's okay. you got to cover rabbit trails at some point, right? Or you never know what's down the trail. Okay. The first one's this. Um, All prophecy in the New Testament... I just want you to hear this. If, you, if you're really into the gift of prophecy, um, if you have a background in that, if you, think, you believe you have the gift of prophetic revelation, I just want you need to hear this. Number one, all prophecy in the New Testament was encouraging. All of it was for building up and encouragement. So, so you never see the gift of prophecy used in the New Testament church as a way to beat someone down Amen. or shame them. Or tell them something incredibly negative. It was never used that way. So if you believe that, that, that you have this gift and you're using it in, in, in an almost weaponized fashion, I would tell you that's an abuse of the gift. And we see that when, when, when this goes really wrong and it's used in manipulative ways, I could tell you right now it's an abuse of the gift. Whether you have that gift or not, we're not even getting into the validity of that. I can just tell you it's only used for the building up, the encouragement, the exhortation of the body. Used in any other way, it is an abuse of the gift. Secondly, hear me on this. Don't speak for God, okay? So so if you believe that that, that this is a gift that God's given you, uh, and he's given you a prophetic revelation, Okay? And I know everyone that believes in cessationism is just squirming in their seats right now. Stay with me. What I would warn you, caution you about when you go to share that with someone, and you hear this, and this is why I'm, I'm gonna address it. You hear someone say, the Lord told me to tell you. Just understand We close the canon of scripture. So so when you say, I'm speaking directly for the Lord, we're not going to reopen the Bible and add your words to the back of it. But that's kind of what you're communicating when you say it in that way. So what I would caution you is, That may very well be from the Lord, although what we're going to see is a lot of caution around how we use that gift in the New Testament. We're going to put some tests to that. Um, We're going to do some other things. I would just caution you to say, if you, with conviction, believe the Lord has put something on your heart and and you've had a prophetic revelation for someone and it involves someone else, number one, first litmus test, is encouraging and building up? If not, it's not from the Lord. Just move right on by. Maybe that's just for you, but it's not for anyone else. Secondly, When you share that with that brother or sister that you're sharing it with, instead of saying, the Lord told me to tell you, say, you know, the Lord's put something on my heart. And the best way I can describe it is this way. That will keep you from speaking directly for the Lord as his mouthpiece, as if you're writing scripture, which we know doesn't happen any longer. Does that make sense? All right. These are just safeguards. These are guardrails to correctly use the gift. Now, I'll just, I'll say one more thing. A lot of the reaction from various people over the years about how they feel about some of these gifts, whether it's speaking in tongues, whether it's prophetic visions, whether these types of things, a lot of the reaction is not actually us looking at the scripture and going, man, what does it say? And, and how do I use this? We react to the abuse of the gift. So the gift gets misused and we go, can't be, can't be real then because someone misused it. That's not how this works, because we've probably all had a bad church experience. But we don't get to go. Church doesn't work. Then had a bad experience. It's got to get out of church now. That would that would be cr- well. Actually, you do know someone that's done that. Probably bad idea, though, right? Let me put it this way: um, If someone was just learning how to use a gift of the spirit, whether it was these or any other ones, and the first time they did it, they messed up, and we're like, "Well, you had your one shot and you blew it. You're out." Well, if that's the case, I wouldn't be preaching because you don't even want to hear my first sermon. You don't even want to hear my first 10 sermons. I mean, they were awful. If someone heard my first couple of sermons, it was like, you, man, we got to get rid of this gift of the preaching. It's clearly false because this guy's an idiot. No, you learn, you, you work through that, right? You work in service as God shapes you to utilize that gift over time and that he makes changes and then in time, that gift gets better and better and better as we use it. Does that make sense? And so a lot of times we react to some of these things because it was abused or is misused or someone wasn't trained up in it yet and instead what we should have done is correct and coach and walk with. Does this make sense? Doesn't sound crazy, right? Okay. So so oftentimes we see an abuse, we see something that goes wrong, and we swing the pendulum all the way back. We overcorrect, we throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's a really old phrase. Some of you are gonna Okay. Everyone's just like, why are you throwing babies? <clears throat> Moving on. Rabbit trail's done. All right. Apostles. And prophets. Then next, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, these three church offices are new. They weren't in Ephesians previously, right? We had two other scriptures that specifically talk about foundational offices for the establishment of the church, but now we hear about three new offices, and I wanna talk about those three new offices the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Uh, there is a formal role of evangelist. Many of our missions partners are evangelists. And uh, once again, that doesn't mean that like y- y- if, you, if you're not a formal evangelist, you don't need to do evangelizing. That doesn't mean that. In fact, uh, you may have a gift of preaching and you're not a pastor. That's actually okay in the same way that you might have potentially have had. And we see this in the new Testament, the gift of prophecy and not have been a prophet. So it is possible to have a gift and not hold one of these church offices, not being a formal evangelist does not preclude every believer from being required to evangelize, to share the gospel and nobody here off the hook from sharing the gospel. The Bible's really clear. It's good news. And if it's really good news, if you see it as good news, you ain't going to be able to shut up about it. And if you're not talking about it, then I got questions. How much is it really worth? Then we get to shepherds and teachers, shepherds and teachers. Now, uh, shepherd is the term in the New Testament that is consistently used for pastor. So you see pastor, shepherd, elder, used over and over again as almost synonymously. So they're interchangeable. And then you see teachers. And there's a little bit of a distinction here, meaning that you you can shepherd people and not necessarily do a lot of teaching. And you can do some teaching and not necessarily shepherd, but they are generally very interrelated, What do these three have in common? Evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. They are the offices of the church who manage and spread the revelation that the foundational offices gave us. So the apostles and the prophets come, and through them, God reveals this mystery of the church and the gospel. And through that revelation, we then have these offices of evangelist, shepherd, and teacher, whose job is to manage that revelation, shepherd the people that come afterwards, spread that revelation to the world and to the church. It is our job, pastors, elders, teachers, shepherds, it is our job to steward the message of what the apostles and prophets founded, which is the church. You guys. These there's an interplay of words in the text when we talk about these giftings, Uh, one of them is that we are talking about spiritual gifts that are given to all men. We saw that last week. But also, when when you kind of read the interplay of the way that Paul writes this, he also is pointing out that evangelists, shepherds, and teachers are a gift to the church. And I never thought about it that way. And I don't know if you have either. Do you realize that These offices, your pastors, your elders, your evangelists, your teachers, your shepherds, they are a gift to you. Dwight Tackett is a born evangelist. He is a gift to Resurrection Church. Do you know that? He's a gift. Richard Marquez is a born evangelist, man. You can't rip the evangelism out of that boy. He is a gift to this church. Sterling Cole is a shepherd and an elder. He is a gift to this church. But boy, we don't see our leaders as gifts that often. It's tough. That's tough. They're a gift because they're involved in helping each of us in the church to develop our gifts. So here is where the rubber meets the road. So we have this first part about the specific church offices uh, focusing kind of here on evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And then we get to this line. This This is the line. To equip the saints... For the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So why do we have pastors? Why do we have elders? Why do we have shepherds? Why do we have teachers at all? Why were they given to the church? Why are they important? Why are they around? To equip, and if you're reading this in your Bible, you can underline equip, to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ to equip what does equip mean to develop to train to hone to identify to refine to polish to test to wrestle with to chase down to encourage to remind correct admonish rebuke protect you the saints that's you say me You're a saint. You're in this text to equip the saints for the work of ministry. You have a job. I'm not talking about your place of employment. You have a job, the work of ministry for the building up of the body. The Bible talks about the body of Christ being the church, the building up of the body, the maturation of the body, so usually when we're preaching, we take one or two words, take like a real small phrase, and we really pull on it, right? We, we, try to, we try to pull out all the meaning and all this context so we can sort of study it. But actually what Paul does right here is he takes what we in English have as one word and he, he has a big, long description of it. So we're going to do the opposite. We're going to take a big, long description and we're going to actually collapse it all into a single word. It's a word we call discipleship. Discipleship. Because discipleship, in its essence is equipping. It's, it's training. And so this whole phrase from Paul that goes all the way through 12b, all the way into 13, which we're going to cover next week, the whole thing we could, call, we could summarize with a single word. To equip, right? The equipping, to equip the saints, that's you guys, the church, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So pastors and elders and teachers are here. They're gifts from God to the church to disciple, to disciple, to help equip you for the works of ministry until we, the whole church mature, look more Christ-like. Primary job pastors, elders is equippers. And, and, Pastors and elders and teachers are not the only equippers. We know that every believer is called to disciple others, but they are the church's primary equippers. Primary equippers. Two fundamental things then that we need to land on if we're going to explain this word equip. And we could spend a sermon series just on what equip really means, what it really looks like. But I want to answer two questions today before we go. What is the goal of discipleship and what is the process of discipleship? Because that's what we're seeing right here. What is the goal of discipleship and what is the process of discipleship? Or you could write it this way. What's the goal of equipping and what's the process of equipping? The goal of discipleship. I'm going I'm to be brief here because next week, the next two verses after this are going to cover this in more detail. But the goal of discipleship is the building up of the body, the whole church, that it increases in unity, because when you increase in maturity in Christ, you increase in unity. There actually is no separation. You can't be more mature in Christ and and less unified. That doesn't work. It means you're not mature. You just think you are. If you're really disunified as a church body, you're not more mature. And a more mature, more unified church is a more effective church. So while there are uh, individual benefits to you for growing up in Christ, so I could I could look at you and say, if you grow in Christ, here's what you'll benefit. I could say, when you grow in Christ, here's the benefit to you. That's true, but even more so, what the Bible is going to talk about, particularly in Ephesians four, is when you grow in Christ, and you grow in Christ, and you grow in Christ, and you do it together. Look how effective the church will be, because that growth will make us mature together. So the goals are corporate. They're communal. They're community-oriented. It's not just you. That's the goal. We'll talk more next week about the goal. Let me talk about the process. Because let me just tell you something. I think if I asked you right now, if I handed out a little, little note card, and I said, hey, tell me how discipleship works we're going to get a lot of different answers. Like, I don't know that we have everybody right now on sort of the same definition of like how this discipleship process works in the context of a local church. And, and, and I think we'd get different answers. And so um, I think discipleship for all of us is uh, very intentional and sometimes it's, it's accidental. And I wanna, I wanna just walk you through the process of discipleship because I think this is gonna matter. Because listen, if, if you and I don't agree at all, if we have very different views on how discipleship is supposed to happen inside the context of the church, you're gonna feel dissatisfied a lot because you keep waiting for something to happen that's not happening. Does that make sense? It would literally be like having the wrong time for the movie. Like you show up at two and the thing doesn't start till four and you're just sitting around going, man, this is really weird. Like, yeah, you're two hours too early. Uh, In leadership, we wrote a uh, full two-page philosophy of discipleship about two years ago. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I printed a bunch of copies if you want one later. I, I put them up here and we'll grab them if you, if you want to read through that. But in that philosophy of discipleship, what we really talked about is I wanted to identify in there how spiritual growth happens, how it happens. And, I, and, and there's seven elements that, that really lend themselves towards you growing in Christ. And I'm not going to go through them all. I'm going to go through a couple, but these really matter because this is how discipleship works. This is the equipping that's in this verse. Number one element, time. It takes time. We, we've talked about this before. Spiritual maturity is a crock pot, not a microwave. Right? We live in a right now world, but the thing is, if you can't take somebody and make them spiritually mature in 15 seconds. In fact, if, if, I'm, if I'm really honest, this is, we're the worst at this. Because right now in American church, we tend to think in these periods of about six to 18 months. So, so, so man, I gave, I gave you 12 months. I should be mature by now. Or man, I've been putting up with that guy for 12 months. He should be mature by now. But, but that's not actually how it works at all. It, it, I, you need to think in terms of five to 10 years. Cause, Cause it takes time for people to change. Time is a big deal. And and listen, uh, my my daughter, uh, Kaya's growing these little strawberries and these little potted plants. And so they put seeds in it. And so she put the seeds in there and she watered it and she came back the next day and she's staring very concerned at the soil because nothing has sprouted. And she's like... And so day two comes by and she walks and she looks and it's still just dirt. And she's like like it's broken. And I was like, no, honey, there's work going on. You just can't see it. Do you hear me? Most of the work in spiritual maturity and discipleship happens in a place that you can't see it. And when you see it, first of all, it took longer than you wanted it to. Secondly, it doesn't even look like a full-grown fruit yet. It's just a little bud, Right? Two weeks later, when we finally got to see the first thing, you know, we saw? Did we see a big, giant, giant ripe strawberry or a, what was it last week? A nectarine? No! We saw a little tiny green shoot. That was it. That was a whole thing. Not impressive at all. That's why, as we gather together in our various forms, whether it's corporately on Sunday morning or in our groups, and we see the signs of God at work, we encourage you. Why? Because it matters because it matters. And we know what that little sprout will become if we continue to seek God. It takes time. Listen, if I told two people that they were gonna race and I told the first person it's a 40-yard dash and I told the other person the truth, it's a three-mile run. (laughs) Guess what happens to the guy that went all out for 40 meters? He's dog tired and he's gonna burn out and he's never gonna make it to the end. Time It takes time. Number two, got to study the scripture. It takes studying the scripture. The word of God has to be at the center of all spiritual growth. It's our compass. It's the light. It's the guide. It's the primary mechanism by which God speaks to man. You and I are subjective, manipulative creatures who will twist things for our own gain. And scripture straightens us out. It's what it does and the man give me five minutes and I'll be off the rails again and scripture is the compass that brings you right back to where God needs you to be. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Takes studying the scripture. Number three, practicing scripture. It is experiential. It requires an individual to attempt to learn out what they live in the scriptures. A lack of living out scripture will harden our hearts. James 1.22 says doers of the word. We we need to be doers of the word. We must put it into practice. You cannot simply hear it, plop down, listen to something, go to brunch. Doesn't work. You've got to be doers. Number four. Intimate Christian relationships. Intimate Christian relationships. Close Christian relationships are critical for growth. These relationships are best when they are authentic, vulnerable, and accountable. Why are we up here pounding the podium week after week telling you to get into a small group? Because they matter. Because they matter. Over time, they matter. Number five, we're only going to cover these five, life events, okay? I would actually call these crises, life events. Now here's the interesting thing about crises. We don't control them, but God often transforms us, not just through blessings, but particularly grows us through crises. When James 1 talks about the benefits of trials, it says that trouble or crisis is needed to produce endurance and faith that leads to maturity. David would never have written Psalm 23 if he's not running for his life. He never writes Psalm 51 if he hasn't failed miserably in sin and then dealt with repentance. Job never really understands actual real dependence on God, even though he loved God until he goes through crisis. We grow the most when our faith is tested. We are inspired by the mountaintop experiences, but we are grown in the valleys. Now, I want you to just think of the the five things that we discovered. Time, studying scripture, practicing scripture, intimate Christian relationships, and life events or crises. Okay, five things. How many of those does a pastor have control over? (laughs) I could preach scripture to you. So Keith Advance or John or any of the other preachers can come up here and we can preach scripture to you. And listen to me. I'm gonna admit something. I can pray that you go through struggles. And I do. I pray for some of you that it gets less comfortable. But here's the problem. For discipleship to really work, for equipping to really work, you got to let people in, really close, way closer than is comfortable, okay? Then it gets worse. (laughs) Then inevitably, when you go through something horrible, something grueling, you can't run away. You got to do it with us. Because your instinct, and we've watched this time and time again, your instinct when the season of life changes or when you begin to go through real chaos or when you fail, you sin, you mess up, is to run. We've, we've watched this again and again. And yet, the very point in which God really wants to grow your faith is that point where you're at the bottom. And, and that's the point. I'll be honest. The point you're going to actually listen to the words that are coming out of my mouth are primarily when things are finally going wrong. And you got to be here for that. you got to be in close Christian relationship for that. That's where the growth happens. And that's opposite of what the American church will tell you. In fact, that's opposite of the American church trend right now because the American church trend right now is the moment stuff gets really bad, I run from accountability. I run from the Christian community. I just change churches because they don't know what I'm going through and I can hide on the back pew. No? If, If you want the equipping to happen if you want the equipping to happen, you've got to give us time, right? Think in five to 10 year segments. And I can't control how long you stay here, only you can do that. You've got to put scripture into practice. That means you can't just hear it on a Sunday or a Monday, or whenever you're listening to a podcast or YouTube, you've got to go put it into practice. You have to have intimate Christian relationships. You have to bring people in close enough that they really know what's going on. That's why we keep talking about groups. That's why we keep talking about mentorship. Now, let me just say this about discipleship. I've, I've heard this before. In fact, recently I heard this, um, and I've mentioned it a couple times to some people I've been talking to. In the same week, I heard someone say to me, uh, man, I just, I just wish someone would pour into me and disciple me. You know, no, I don't think anyone in the church is just interested in, in pouring into me and I'm, I'm sitting here, no one's pouring into me, no one's discipling me. The same week, I heard someone else say, I think it was one day later, when I asked them, you know, hey, who are you discipling? They're like, oh, no one wants to hear from me anyways. And I thought, man, it's like two ships passing in the night. I'm just going to submit to you. There's probably a whole group of people in this church who would love to pour into someone. There's another group of people that would love to be poured into. How do they find one another? It's like a junior high dance where all the boys sit against the wall on one side and all the girls sit against the wall on the other side. <laughs> We're all awkward no one walks on the floor. Let me tell you how you you uh, you find someone. You ask them. You get to know them. You get curious about them about their lives and what they do and what they like and where they live and how it's going with Christ and, and where your walk is at. You, you learn to love them so you can disciple them. You learn to love them so you can learn from them. Like it actually requires interaction. If you're sitting somewhere complaining about the, either the lack of people to mentor or the lack of people to mentor you, and you're not actually doing anything about it. Listen, I got a plopping lesson for you. Get off your donkey. Right? It, 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 I, the, it, two weeks ago, I looked at my life. I'm, I'm, I'm doing some spiritual inventory and I'm going, mm, man, I don't think uh, I have enough. I don't have I don't have enough mentorship in my life right now, right? I don't I don't have enough people looking at me who are older and wiser, have been through the ministry trials, have been through some of these issues, can kind of point to stuff in my life and put their finger on it. And so it's it's not my job to sit around at my desk and go, "Geez, Lord, I hope you'll drop someone through the roof soon that'll do like Instead, I search you know, my, my relationships, and I go, man, who could do this? And I reach out to people. I go, hey, here's what I believe the Lord is leading me. Here's what I think I'm missing. Here's what I believe I need. Would you be willing to do this? Why? Because I know I need it. Now, the opposite is I could sit at my desk and complain about it. Which one do you think is going to be more effective? Anyways, okay. Let's not go there. About three months ago, my wife and I were looking at our uh, small group, which we had had a break, and it had dwindled, and there weren't enough people in it, and we said, we lack Christian accountability. There's not enough people in our life that know what's going on, so we could sit here at home, and we could complain about it, or we start meeting people in the context of church and in life and inviting them to our home until it just gets too full, and, and they're spilling out the doorways, and then our group will have a baby, and there'll be another one, you know? What am I telling you to do? Here's what I'm telling you to do. I want to say this the right way and as gently as possible. If you want to grow in Christ, if you want to actually be, begin to just be encouraged and, and in some sense amazed by what Christ is going to do through you. And, and, you're, and you're, just, you're struggling in the context of life of understanding how that would ever even happen. The, the first step in, in, in that whole process is what has, I think, mostly already occurred in our church, which is an urgency and a disturbance has grown inside you. And it is an urgency and a disturbance that, 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 man, I want more of God. I want to see God work more. I want to see miracles. I want to see people come to Christ. I want to see families put back together again. I, I want to see legacies changed. Like, like that, that begins to grow in you. And that disturbance, I would call that a, a holy discontent. That that holy discontent begins to grow inside you. And the, the wonderful thing about that is um, it, it, it doesn't feel great sometimes because you have angst almost that it's not happening and you want it to happen faster. And, I, and, and in, in those phases, in that season, when that's happening, I'm like, slow down. This is great, but it's not a 40-yard sprint, right? Like, like good, because I can't make that happen for you. Like, like, every pastor wants their church to grow in that angst in that holy discontentment. Because I can't, I can't produce it in you. I, I can't will it to happen. I don't have a genie in a, in a little lamp or I would have already rubbed it and wished that. But, but when that happens, and I think largely that is happening in our church, like there's this growing discontent of, man, we want to see God here. We want to see him move. We want to see him change lives. That has to happen first. And, and, I, and I believe it's occurring. But the second thing that has to happen before you uh, go on a journey to figure out all of your spiritual gifts and your calling and all those other things, you got to get in the game. You got to get in the game. Let me let me see if I can give you a, an illustration. Um, you know, if you're if you're coaching like youth football and you're trying, or even baseball or any sport, and you're trying to figure out when a new kid comes, maybe hasn't played much, what position would be best for them? you don't sit them in the stands for three years and have them fill out a bunch of assessments, right? You know what you do? You throw them in, sometimes the deep end. Just kick them in, see if they can swim. You just get them on the field. Let's go. Let's do some stuff, man. Let's start exercising this heart of serving others. Let's start utilizing what talents, gifts, competencies we have because we see a need. We're just going to run and, and, and try to fill the need. And in time, what God will do in us is begin to clarify for you where your spiritual gifts lie, where he's calling you to work, where ministry it becomes just a burden on your heart and you've got to run towards that. But it doesn't happen from the stands. It happens in the trenches and, and so we got it backwards, right? And, and this is our culture, is, is we all sort of sit from afar and we make sort of objective thoughts and feelings about what's going on over there and we go, man, I wish I knew where I fit in. And if I knew where I fit in, then I'd get involved. No, no. Let me tell you why that doesn't work. Because if it worked that way, I would never be a pastor. Ever. Because I, I don't care what assessment you gave me, I would not have chosen that. I chose something else, man. I would have lied on the test. <laughs> nope, 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 not my gift. Nope, 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 right? Like I would have manipulated that for my own gain. You know what had to happen? I just had to have this burden that I had to serve other people and I needed to get in the game and I, you know, I just couldn't sit on that seat on the sideline anymore. I needed to be part of it because I wanted to see God move and it wasn't, it wasn't enough for someone else to talk about God moving. I wanted to see God move. I don't, I don't want to hear about it happening over there. I want to be part of it in the middle of it. Who wants to watch it from afar when you can be part of it? It's got to get in the game. Last week we were talking about don't let your fruit rot, right? Like, the, like the, the, the average church in America has about 25, 30% of the people that relatively do almost all of the work of ministry in the church, except that's not the verse we just read, right? The the pastors and shepherds, the evangelists are there to equip the saints, not 20% of the saints, not 25% of the saints. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and he's put his Holy Spirit inside you and he's gifted you with spiritual gifts, then you are the saints here for equipping. And, And primarily the way your equipping grows, transforms, matures, gets better, gets clarified, gets prioritized is in the trenches of the work of ministry. And, and, and in fact, the moment you withdraw from that and sit in a seat and watch, everything actually gets kind of toxic. It gets kind of gross. Because it gets out of shape. Does this make sense? Yeah. All right. If we really understood... How much serving would transform us into the image and heart of Christ, we would have a waiting list of volunteers for every ministry a mile long. But that's not what I have. Last, we used to have about 80 volunteers for kids ministry. I mean, we're a church that in our distinctives puts, we want to be a multi-generational church that raises up the next generation. That's one of our three distinctives as a church. And I went from having 80 volunteers in kids ministry to raise up children, to care for children, to teach them about Jesus to 17. Last week, there were so many babies in first service that our children's director had to come in the back door during the service and tap people on the shoulder and beg them to come and hold children. Now, let me just ask you, does that sound like the heart of a church that wants to raise the next generation? I almost got one of the babies and preached the whole sermon holding the thing today to drive home the point that it is not okay to plop. Now, I'm not talking to you that already volunteer in 17 ministries and you're burning out. Please, don't go for an 18th. But there are needs you can meet. So so we know that there's this phenomenon in American church that you feel like you need to be personally asked to serve somewhere. Look at me right in the eyes. I am personally asking you to serve in a ministry for the glory of God. This is your personal invite. I actually can't see any of you because these lights are really bright but you can pretend. All right? Get in the game. Because the transforming, equipping work of the Holy Spirit happens in the trenches, not in the stadium seats. Get in the game. Two things, two takeaways here. Two takeaways. If you want to jump in and grab a shovel... So what I'm asking you to do, there's going to be a bunch of ways to do that. Uh, Pastor Steve's going to come up right now, and he's going to walk you through some ways to get involved. I highly encourage you to jump in. Now, I've also, separate from that, had questions after last week of like, well, how do I know what my spiritual gifts are? And, and how do I uh, figure out where God is specifically calling me in and into what ministry? And, and I just want to say two things about that. Number one, um, that's step 3, right? Step 2, like before we get to figuring out all of my calling, the first step is just get in the game and get going. Get serving. Let God transform my heart, okay? The next step of really trying to seek God and where he's leading me. I'm going to give you two things uh, to do. If, if you want to do it, if that's on your heart and you really want to do that, there are two books that are just phenomenal that you can go through in your small group. One of them is a Hebrew word called Kazon, not spelled at all how you would think, by Craig Rochelle. C-H-A-Z-O-W-N, kazone. I'll tell you about it later. It's a phenomenal book for looking at calling in your life. You can do that in a small group setting. It's a great small group. Second thing, there's a book called Experiencing God by Blackaby. It's been around 30 years. It's still phenomenal. I've been through it three times. Both of those are tremendous journeys to seek God. But here's the key. They're about seeking God. If you want to know where God's calling you, you have to seek God. I can't seek God for you. I can tell you you need to. So, Step, first step, get in the game. Second step, and there are tools that you can use in your community groups for this. Commit to seeking God. Commit to running after him. The Bible says he's not hiding himself from you. He's not making himself hard to find. We're just really lazy at seeking him. Let me pray over our service. Father God, we thank you so much for the gifts to the church that you've given them, the pastors, the elders, the evangelists, God, we thank you for the body, how it builds up to maturity, God, how your spirit empowers each of the people here, God. You have a a calling on them. You have ministry works for them. You have inspiration for them, God. I thank you for each member here today, God, the glorious kingdom work that you are going to accomplish through them and the privilege that we each individually and corporately have to get to be part of your work. God, I ask that you help us to continue to be a hungry people that seek after you and desire to see you move. Jesus name. Amen.